Buds fans, and welcome to the Babbling Buds Podcast, hosted by Jordan Jacqueline. 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 Welcome to the 11th episode of the Babbling Buds Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Jordan Jacqueline. A once-a-week show covering the Toronto Maple Leafs and the NHL as a whole, bringing in a mix of various analytics and the eye test when discussing players and the team. I thank you for joining me today, and to make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes, follow us on Twitter at the Babbling Buds to stay up to date on all news surrounding the show. And it's a pleasure to announce today's guest, Ian Tulloch, a contributor from Maple Leafs Hot Stove and an analytics nerd like myself. You can follow his Twitter at Ian Graff. I just want to get a quick thought from you, Ian. Which trade surprised you the most this past weekend? Seth Jones to Chicago, Pavel Bujnevich to St. Louis, Rasmus Ristolainen into Philadelphia, or Oliver ekman Larson to Vancouver? Which one of those surprised you the most? I'll go with the Seth Jones and the fact that he now has a more expensive contract than Kale McCarr despite being replacement level, I want to say, the last year or so, oh, he's according been, to most models. His, if you see um, this past season, he was in like the third percentile and more, as, uh, according to Jay Fresh model. Like He's really uh, taking a steep fall. Now, I, I imagine it will regress to the mean maybe a little bit over the next few years, but he's projected to not perform at all to that $9.5 million cap hit. He's one of those fascinating cases where the eye test and the analytics don't match up at all because you'll have people who watch him ever since his draft year, really, and say this is obviously a top pair caliber defenseman. And then you look at his results when he's on the ice and they don't match up with that. So you have to wonder, is it the situation? Is Are there some contextual factors in play here? Or is this maybe a situation where we're overrating the player? I remember people telling me that Nikita Zaitsev couldn't possibly be as bad as his zone exit numbers made him look. And they said, no, 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 just give me some breakout numbers on him and and show me that he's actually decent at moving the puck. And I pulled out the breakout numbers and he was worst in the league. And at some point you have to believe the evidence. And with Seth Jones, I don't want to say that he's a terrible defenseman because I wouldn't be shocked if he has a much better season this year in Chicago and maybe even the season afterwards. But I would be shocked if he ends up being worth nine and a half million dollars over the eight years of that contract. So that's definitely not one that I think is fair value, quote unquote, but very few contracts that get signed around this time, especially when July 28th opens up, which is the new July 1st. It's so weird trying to remind myself that July 28th is the free agency deadline, but I don't think we're going to see too many uh, fair value contracts handed out in the next week. Well, if you want to really have fun with it, look at the most expensive defenseman in the league and specifically the top six, because you find names like Drew Doughty making $11 million. And then Seth Jones, I believe now is number six on that list. Tons of guys making more money than the likes of Miro Heiskin and Cal McCarr, obviously UFA compared to RFA, but interesting debate there. A lot of those guys are now considered to be overpaid, but we're going to get into some of the trade talk later in the show. First, the NHL draft happened this past Friday and Saturday. The Leafs only had three picks total, but by the looks of it, they really made the most of it. So they got a lot of value in their selections, selecting Matthew Nyes with their second rounder, Ty Voigt in the round five, and uh, Vyacheslav Peksa in round six, taking another Russian goaltender. Let's start off with uh, Matthew Nyes, because I want to get your opinion on this. Various mock drafts rated him as a first round pick, but Patrick Bacon's NHL equivalency model rating him at 14th overall. He was born in Arizona, played in the USHL this past season. What do you think of the of him as a player based off what you know and have heard uh, maybe on Twitter as well? Uh, what do you, I just want to get your thoughts initially on Nyes. 
First of all, I want to thank you for bringing up the the models here because you know I'm, I'm a nerd just like you. I love looking at this stuff to try to match the analytics with my eyes and try to put together this crazy puzzle that is player evaluation. It's not an easy process. We try to weight everything. I know whenever I'm trying to evaluate a player, whether it's a 17-year-old for the draft or whether it's a 25-year-old in their prime at the NHL level, you look for certain things. You want to see a guy who can move the puck. You want to see a guy who looks confident with the puck on his stick and can read the game at a high level. That's something I think I see from uh, from Nyes. Not necessarily at a top 10 level like some of these other draft picks. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of my favorites. Eklund. I can't believe oh, he yeah. slipped as far as he did. Gunther. There are some good players in this draft who slipped pretty late. I'm going to be fascinated to see their development. So Nyes obviously slipped for a reason. I don't think he was a, a top 10, top 20 talent. But when you look at his production, not just this year, but in his previous season, point per game seasons at the USHL level, it used to be a death sentence to be in the USHL and not be on the US National Development Program because it just wasn't a very strong league in the early 2000s, mid 2000s. But around 2010 onwards, I've done a lot of research into draft equivalencies, and that's something that Patrick Bacon's done some research on. And what it shows is that in the last decade and a half, the USHL's really taken off to the point where if you can produce at a point-per-game clip in that league, it's very similar to doing that in the WHL, the Q, maybe not quite the OHL, but it's close. It's much closer than I think a lot of scouts realize. And the fact that he had that level of production in the league, you match it with his size, he's 6'2 or 6'3, depending on where you check, 210 pounds. You combine it with some puck-moving ability and clearly some finishing talent if you can score a point-per-game clip and back-to-backs. I like the pick in the second round. I think it's good value. The things about cheering for the Leafs over the last few years is that you don't get to enjoy the draft process as much anymore because they're trading away all their picks. They used to have top 10 picks, top 5 picks. Yeah. We could really dive into the Mitch Marner versus Dylan Strome debate. There was a lot more uh, to chew on. You had the William Nylander, Nick Ehlers year. And everyone was praying that they didn't take Jake Furtanen. And, and thank God they didn't because Vancouver beat them to it. But with the draft now, it's funny because now we're looking at some late round sleepers. We're looking at guys who, oh, who's going to slip to 57? Oh, who can they grab around the fifth round range? And I used to dive so deep into draft analysis. I did it in 2016. I did it in 2018. There were certain drafts I really dove into. This wasn't one where I evaluated every single player to the same degree that I have in years past, but... I think from doing research in previous years, you'll notice a few trends that tend to stick. And for me, that's players who are undersized with a, a great point production. And we'll probably get to that with the Leafs fifth round pick. I'm also a huge fan of players who succeed in pro leagues in, in Europe. I know the Leafs didn't select anyone other than the Russian goaltender who, by the way, I'm not sure what I can say about any goaltender under the age of 18. I'm not a, a, a goalie voodoo specialist here, but I'm curious about your your thoughts on on the Matthew Nyes pick because he was definitely the, the, the I don't even know the best way of describing it, but he was the big prospect that you're going to be looking forward to. Toronto only had one pick in the top 60 and he was their pick. What are your thoughts on his play? Uh, I'm interested in Nyes as a player just because, you know, looking at a player like Nick Robertson, it kind of seems like they have a similar trajectory in terms of their careers so far because uh, Robertson, by all accounts, should have been a first-round pick even in his draft year. And Nyes, even I've been told, uh, described by certain of the scouts on Twitter, that he actually, even though he is a big player, he has some of those similar attributes that the undersized forwards have. And uh, in terms of like, he's going to be a power forward. I think he'll be a middle six uh, contributor eventually at the NHL level, but the least can afford to be patient with him. And I'm curious, to, he's an interesting player for me. And I, I kind of want to dive into the NHL equivalency model just a little bit more with you here. And I want to know how effective they are 
in your opinion, at evaluating prospects? Because a player that I want to get into is Fabian Lazelle, who was drafted by the Boston Bruins, A2 Rat2, as well, drafted by the New York Islanders. Those guys rated very poorly on Patrick Bacon's uh, NHL equivalency model that he uses. And uh, that's ve- now the debate about that is because some players play in the Swedish Hockey League. And obviously, they're notorious for getting not a lot of ice time. They don't really have the trust of their coaches. And then they also spend time in uh, the under-20 Swedish League. So I'm curious to get your uh, opinion on that because his model kind of takes into account more so the SHL numbers than the under-20 SHL numbers. I kind of want to get your opinion there on the NHLE model in general. Yeah, for sure. NHLE is interesting because it's not a perfect tool. All it does is look at points. It doesn't take ice time into account. It doesn't take line mates into account. It doesn't know whether or not you got power play time or whether your coach hated you and just had you on the fourth line all year and never gave you any offensive opportunities. But one thing it can be really good for is if you have a large enough sample of players from different leagues, you can get an idea of how strong each league is relative to each other. And this is where we can find out, obviously, the NHL is the best league in the world. After that, it's the KHL and then the Swedish Pro League and the Finnish Pro League. And one of the interesting things from the research is that some of these under 20 leagues, like you mentioned in, in Sweden, the Super Elite, or in Finland, it's the Junior A Liga, or in Russia, the MHL. There's You'll hear some debates from scouts on how strong the MHL is now versus what it might have been in the past. But the research that I've done shows that those leagues are much stronger, I think, than they tend to be drafted, at least in the most recent years. I think they're under-scouted. I think uh, the fact that you can send a scout out to the OHL, the WHL, the Q, and it all makes sense as a a simple scouting trip, it's a lot easier to do that, whereas you don't have as many European scouts. So my theory is that if you had more European scouts, and not just that, but if you had more European scouts who had influence in the draft room, then we'd probably see some of these European players in these junior leagues get drafted higher than they have been in the past. And I think that's that would reflect the actual value a bit better. But one thing you brought up was players not getting a lot of ice time in the SHL. One of my favorite things to bring up whenever I'm nerding out on the draft and trying to explain to people my, my obsession with these numbers is uh, the 51% rule. And I'm sure you're familiar with this. I've it's heard the this. idea of if you score a tenth of a point per game, so 0.1 points per game, at the Swedish uh, level, at the, as, as a 17-year-old in your draft year, all you need is one point every 10 games. You could finish the season with three points in 27 games. You'd meet the SHL requirement for this 51% rule. Over the last 30-plus years, players who meet that requirement have gone on to become NHL players 51% of the time. So what that suggests is that if you're in the league, if you're simply there and you can grab a point in one of your games, it means that it's indicative of something greater. It's the fact that your coaches saw you as good enough to not only play in the super elite and rack up a bunch of points there, but they thought that you could handle playing against men at age 17. So even if you don't have a bunch of points, it's still a very good indicator that you have a likelihood of becoming an NHL player. Now, whether or not you have a chance of being a top six NHL player or being a first line NHL player or being a superstar, I think that's another conversation. But when it comes to European prospects who are producing at what looks like a low rate, I think you need to consciously adjust for that and realize that William Nylander in his draft year, I remember when he first got drafted, I saw 22 games played, seven points. That doesn't look very good, but... It's actually very impressive because you're going up against men. And like you said, your coaches probably aren't giving you a whole bunch of ice time because you're a teenager. They probably don't trust you too much defensively. 
Definitely. I remember even having this debate in October when Rodi and Amirov was drafted because everybody looked at his point totals in the KHL and were like, this guy's awful. Why are we drafting him at 15? Well, guess what? If you look a little bit further to that and his numbers uh, in the MHL, uh, it po- paints a different picture there. So that's obviously why you have to take into account those various situations. I kind of want to dive into uh, Void here, who didn't play any games in the OHL this past season, only participating in the Erie Summer Showcase that took place in June. Many people are very high on him. I saw Mitch Brown of uh, EP Ringside had him as a top 50 pick in this draft class. Brock Ot- uh, Oten as well, calling him one of the premier playmaker <laughs> playmakers of this draft. He's even been compared to Mitch Marner in that sense. Now, I kind of want to get your thought on this because Rachel Dory, who you know very well, made a point on Twitter. Kind of, uh, she tweeted out saying, I'm absolutely begging you to not compare 18 year olds to NHLers. They will develop into their own. There's no need to add the pressure of a comparison to kids. Do you think that's a main issue when evaluating prospects is trying to constantly compare them to an NHLer? Uh, there was a joke I saw last year how there could be some 5'9", 170-pound kid, and he got compared to Evgeny Malkin. And what are we doing with some of these comparables? These aren't even realistic. If you look at the likelihood of a player beyond pick, let's say, 20 in the first round being an NHLer, it's not very likely. So if you compare anyone drafted in the third or fourth round to a current NHL player, odds are you're going to be wrong because they're probably not going to make it. The likelihood of players making it in the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round isn't very high. So as much as I'd love to compare a five foot nine guy drafted in the later rounds to a Johnny Gaudreau or to a Mitch Marner, I don't think that's necessarily the the best thing to do. But at the same time, I, I know there are a lot of draft gurus out there who hate the idea of comparables. They hate the idea of, oh no, every player is their own snowflake and we need to just evaluate their tools and let's not compare them to other players. I don't fully believe in that. I think you can compare a player's skating stride to another player's skating stride. You can compare their shot to another player's shot, their puck skills, their vision, the way that they play. I remember someone compared Rasmus Sandin in his rookie year, uh, or at least in the uh, for the Sioux Greyhounds, compared to Anton Strallman for his oh, yeah. composed style of play. And yeah, I can see a lot of that too. Yeah, he's not the same handedness, not the same height, different skating stride, but the idea of yeah, that's kind of the way he goes about playing the game. And maybe he's not going to be a, a first pair, a pair caliber defenseman like Anton Strawman was in his prime, but I think you can still make that comparison. If I can get to Ty Voigt here, I can see why you would make a Marner comparison or why you compare him to some of these smaller, shiftier playmakers. If I was going to compare him to someone in the Leaf system, I think I'd choose SDA, uh, Semyon Der Argachinstev. Tiny little player. I think he grew to 5'10 in his growth spurt, which, by the way, I would have loved if I could hit that I think I peaked at 5'9 in life. So this oh, is really? why I'm always, I'm, I I'm, can't relate. I'm 6'2 here. So Oh, okay. All right. So yeah, I'm more of a I'm more of a Ty Voigt. You're more of a Matthew Nyes over here. Those are the Yeah, GMs actively here. look to pick me over you. Oh yeah, no. GMs love it when they can walk up to you and look up as they shake your hand. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the reason that they drafted you. But um height bias and player evaluation tends to be something that I'm very cognizant of. I think it's because I'm a short man myself. So it's always something I'm looking for. I'm like, how are we undervaluing these guys? Can we draft more defensemen under six feet tall? Can we draft more forwards under five foot 10 and just look at the talent, not worry so much about the height? I mean, frankly, I've never really cared too much about height. I care more about weight. I care more about thickness and your ability to win a puck battle some guys do it at 5'9 brendan gallagher plays like a power forward yeah no one cares that he's 5'9 because he's very difficult to deal with in front of the net and in the corners i don't think that ty voigt is that type of player i think he is more of a 
skill-based playmaker. I don't want to use the word perimeter player because that, that word's been thrown a lot, uh, thrown around a lot, whether it's with Marner or Nylander. And I don't necessarily love the way that portrays them, but when it comes to Voight, I'm fascinated in him because anytime you can take a bet on a smaller player with skill in the later rounds, I think it's a good idea. I think that history has shown us that the players who produce well in their pre-draft year, which is all we have on Ty Voight, we don't have any draft year data on him, but he scored a uh, roughly a half point per game clip in his pre-draft year in the OHL, which is actually very good for a 16-year-old historically. What would he have produced at age 17 with a full season? We're never going to know, but if we could guess around a point per game, I think I don't think that's too crazy to suggest. And if that were the case, he probably would have gone in the second or third round. So this is an interesting pick in that, like you said, it's a COVID season. He didn't get a full year to actually play and put up points. So what's he going to do next season when he actually has that opportunity? And he has put on a bit more height, a bit more weight. Can he come into next season and produce at that point per game, point and a half per game pace that you'd love to see a guy like him do. We'll see. Again, any fifth round pick, very unlikely they end up becoming an NHLer, but I like the philosophy behind this pick and I'll always believe in players who fit his profile. Definitely. And I know we don't have too much that we can add on PEXA, but I do find it interesting the least uh, drafting back-to-back years a Russian goaltender. I wonder... Um, I wonder what this uh, theme suggests because uh, he is an athletic goalie that has some upside and can't get in some, some he, only, he primarily played in the MHL this past year. I could see him playing in some KHL games. Akimov, who was the pick last year, is already playing in KHL games as a 19-year-old, which intrigues me as well. So I'm under, eventually, because, you know, the past few years, Joe, Joseph Wall, uh, Ian Scott were the goalies that were picked, North American goaltenders. They haven't exactly projected as well as they were uh, seem to be back in uh, their draft years. I mean, Ian Scott was the starting goalie for Team Canada. People had very high expectations on them. And obviously, take goal t- it takes goalies quite a while to find their groove at the professional level. So I'm curious, uh, what do you think of that just in general about the Leafs kind of choosing the Russian side there to find their goalies? Yeah, and again, I, I don't want to say too much about goaltenders in the draft <laughs> because this is not my area of strength. Even when I went deep into my research uh, ways back in 2017, 2018, when I was trying to develop some kind of NHL e-model, I, I went and thought, okay, is there any way I could statistically do this for goalies? And I tried, and I failed. It's difficult. <laughs> it's very tough to project a 17-year-old goalie. What are they going to be at 25? And you can use stats to, to the best of your ability, but one of the hard parts with goaltending is that there's a lot of contextual factors in play. Save percentage is the one stat that somewhat puts goaltenders on an even playing field. At least it's not wins. At least it's not goals against average. But there are teams who at lower levels will have incredibly structured defenses that don't allow too many high danger chances. And then there'll be other junior teams that allow a crazy amount of high danger chances. And it's not fair to compare two goalies on the same playing field if they're facing drastically different shots. So statistically, when I was trying to do this back in the day, that was one of the factors that I ran into. So I haven't watched too many of these goaltenders. I don't have too many meaningful statistics on them. So I don't want to come out here and say, yes, I know exactly what this goaltender is going to be. He's going to be a star. And every goalie that other teams drafted, they're not going to pan out because with goaltending, it's so volatile. One strategy I did want to point out is that I'm never a huge fan of drafting goalies early. I know that's becoming a more common trend, and maybe with the success of Vasilevsky and if guys like Wallstead and Casa, and if we see Spencer Knight have a big year with Florida next year, maybe that's a trend we'll see more in the future. But I know from looking at the history of the research, 
goaltenders drafted in the first, second, third round, they're not any more likely to become NHL players than a goaltender drafted in the fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh round. So what that would tell me if I have these assets and I get to use them to try to acquire the best hockey players possible, I'd spend my first few round picks on forwards and defensemen. And I, if I was going to pick a goalie, I'd pick him in the later rounds. That seems to be what Kyle Dubas has done here. He drafted Vyacheslav Peksa in the sixth round, drafted Arter, oh, I'm going to botch the name, Aktiamov in the fourth round I think round it's Aktiamov. I watched watch Steve Dangle's draft video just because I know he's yeah, so great see, at pronouncing I botch names. these names so brutally. On Elite Prospect, sometimes you can click on the name. It'll actually give you the pronunciation. If I was smart, I would have done that right before recording to make sure I had all these fresh in my mind. But I like the idea of drafting goaltenders later in the draft. I think there's a chance to get more bang for your buck there. I'm not going to pretend that I know the goalie that the least drafted really well, but I like the idea of saving uh, the goaltender picks for later in the draft because I think that's more of a way to maximize the assets of your draft capital. No, I agree with you there, especially looking at like a five-year sample from 2005 to 2010. You saw Carey Price go fifth overall, but then you also saw the likes of Steve Mason, Jack Campbell get drafted early, and I wouldn't necessarily say those guys lived up to their draft value for being picked so high. I think what you're suggesting is going uh, picking a goalie in the second to seventh rounds will likely provide more value, value, and then picking a skater in the first round is likely the most efficient way of drafting a prospect. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. And Jonathan Bernier was another mind, another name who came to mind when you're bringing up uh, goalies who got drafted early. I'm not sure if Malcolm Subban went in the first round, but he was definitely an early. Yeah, pick, he went in so. 2012. I remember. Yeah, so sometimes those picks pan out, sometimes they don't. But if you want to get more cost certainty with a first round pick or a second round pick, I'd prefer to use it on a forward or defenseman personally. And I know there will be some people out there who say, well, yeah, but what if Thatcher Demko slips? Or what if Jake Ottinger slips? Or what if uh, a goalie who's a clear first round talent slips into the second round? And there's always going to be exceptions. But I just think when you look at the long history, let's say last 10, 15 years of looking at prospects, the best way to maximize those assets tends to be by picking the goaltenders a bit later in the draft. Now, I might be proven wrong by the Vasilevskis of the world, but I think it's a solid draft philosophy to go with if you're trying to get the most out of your picks. No, I definitely agree with you there. And besides the actual draft, I want to get your thoughts on Zach Hyman leaving Toronto and the Leafs not trading his UFA rights this past weekend. It was reported that Toronto wanted a second-round pick in return. Edmonton would only trade a six. A resolution could not be found, so Hyman will go to the market and will now have to sign a seven-year contract opposed to eight at a slightly higher cap hit to adjust for that. Do you think Dubas should have just accepted the deal from Ken Holland, or was he right to stand his ground? See, there are a lot of criticisms you could make about Dubas in the last month or so, but I don't think this is one of them. I, I think he actually did what fans have wanted him to do for a long time now, which is standing his ground. If you could make a criticism of Kyle Dubas in contract negotiations, it's that he didn't stand his ground. It's that he acquiesced to Mitch Marner's demands and made him one of the more overpaid stars in hockey, which is unfortunate because he's a really good hockey player, but... The fact that he's overpaid relative to his comps in Braden Point and Matthew Kachuk and Sebastian Ajo, Miko Rantanen, that's always going to have a cloud over him throughout the, until he wins the Stanley Cup. Let's face it, that, that's just the yeah. reality of the situation. Oh, yeah. It's unfortunate, but that's a big uh, criticism that you can make of Kyle Dubas. So the fact that he actually put his foot down here and said, no, we're not going to just give you a sixth round pick for Zach Hyman. It needs to be better than that. I like that from Kyle Dubas. Uh, one, one thing I find interesting is that sixth round picks compared to, say, a third round pick or a fourth round pick, there's not 
a massive drop off in likelihood of selecting an NHL player or selecting an NHL star later in the draft. After about pick 20, pick 25, it really tails off and you're just dealing with a bunch of randomness after that. And one way I heard it described to me by a scout was that a lot of NHL teams will have more or less similar draft boards in the first round. And then after the first round, some teams might have a guy, let's say 30. Well, there, how many teams are there in the NHL? There's 32. Now, 32. So 33rd on their board. They might have a guy 33rd on their board. Another team might have them 170th. Another team might not even have them on their board. There's a lot more variance later in the draft. So if the Leafs could have picked up, let's call it a fourth round pick instead of a sixth round pick, instead of what they actually ended up with, which was no pick, you could make the argument, well, you could have got some draft capital and you didn't get any draft capital. So that's a bit frustrating, but I think in the long run, if you can show people that you're not willing to budge in certain situations, I think that can ha- pay dividends. So the fact that Kyle Dubas did that and is publicizing it right now it, it, through Twitter, I know in the past in contract negotiations, he hasn't wanted to go public with them. But this one appeared to go public, and it wouldn't shock me if he wanted it to go public because it clearly demonstrates that he's willing to st- stand his ground in some of these negotiations. I think that that shines a positive light on Dubas at a time where there isn't much positivity towards Dubas and Leafsland. So I'll give him that. I'll give him some credit. No, I definitely agree with you there because he's eventually going to have to prepare to sign Austin Matthews as an unrestricted free agent, right? Assuming he makes it that far, of course. But uh, well, yeah, as, as long as... The Arizona rumors <laughs> that are definitely going to come up. Oh, yeah, definitely. But So we'll have to see. I mean, this is a positive sign. It kind of shows uh, a sense of maturity from the young general manager there. I kind of want to get into, get into this because Kevin McGran of the Toronto Star had a busy day today reporting that Zach Bogosian will not be returning to the Leafs. It was already heavily uh, rumored, but this basically confirms it. So I want to have a few points I want to make on this. Was Bogosian was surprisingly a solid third-pairing defenseman and produced effective results with Travis Dermott. Is Timothy Lilligren ready to come into an NHL role, in your opinion? He was drafted in 2017, uh, 17th overall. He's he's progressed literally every season with the Toronto Marlies. He seems like he's just about to be ready there. He even looked good in his little small sample size at the NHL level this year. I want to get your thoughts on that. I think Lilligren's ready to play bottom pair of minutes at 5-on-5. Five five. I think his gap has improved massively since his draft year. I don't think he's going to be the power play weapon that you'd hoped he would be when you first drafted him. I know watching him a lot at the AHL level, that was the one thing I wanted to see in the offensive zone. Are you dynamic? Can you break players down in one-on-one situations and thread a pass through the middle of the ice that the defense doesn't want to allow, but you created it because of your skill? I haven't seen as much of that from him as I've wanted to, but his ability to break the puck out and move up the ice effectively and then prevent the other team from doing so by playing a tight gap. I know in his one game at the NHL level, I was blown away. I was making notes on him. I was following him around the ice the most because most of these games, you know, especially when you get into the dog days of the season, it gets hard to find meaning out of these games. It gets really hard. Like, oh, great. Austin Matthews scored another goal. Like, you really learned something today. But when Timothy Lilligren's in the lineup, okay, this gives me something to actually watch very closely. And I really liked his gap. I liked the fact that despite he was, the fact that he was facing NHL skaters and it was a level of competition that he hadn't faced yet, he looked really good at stepping up in the neutral zone, taking away the clean entry, forcing dump-ins. And I think that at 5-on-5, five five, that's what you want to see from your defenseman. You want to see guys who can move the puck up the ice and prevent the other team from moving the puck down your way. The trouble with Lilligren is that I'm not sure if I see a spot for him on special teams. I'm not sure if he's a PP2 guy because you're going to have Sandine and Riley, presumably, 
taking those spots. On the PK, is he someone you trust? And I think this is why Kyle Dubas mentioned he wants a Zach Bogosian type because Zach Bogosian was a steady defensive presence on the third pair. And he was also a really good penalty killer. You could maybe put Lilligren on PK two, but he's definitely not a PK one guy. And this is where I think he's going to lose a roster spot to a Zach Bogosian type. What Zach Bogosian did last year, you mentioned it, him and Travis Dermott all season, excellent results on the third pair. The PK was solid. I don't want to say it was elite, but the PK was solid. And Bogosian, I think, was a factor in that. Is he better than Justin Hall on the PK? Yeah, there's a bit of a debate there, in my opinion. But I think the one thing you're looking for on a third pair that presumably is going to have either a Dermot or a Rasmus Sandin, you want someone who can settle play down a little bit. You want someone who can be the last man back on a three-on-two rush or a two-on-one rush. I'm thinking of TJ Brody now. Every time Morgan Riley pinched, you knew TJ oh, Brody no. was going to be there. Assuming Rasmus Sandin pinches, can you be certain that the right side defenseman is going to be back there? If it's Timothy Lilligren, I'm not sure how certain I am, which is why I think the Leafs are going to be looking for a defenseman who can fill that role. So Lilligren might be the odd man out in this situation. I could see him being a number 7D who plays top pair minutes with the AHL team, and then they call him up to be the third pair D. I like the idea of Lilligren playing lots of games this year. I'm just not sure how likely it is, considering how much they seem to value that Zach Bogosian presence defensively and on the PK. No, I agree with you there, and I wonder how much ice time he'll be able to get. In an ideal world, you would just cl uh, clone the TJ Brody three times for your right pair, but sadly, that's not a possibility. So they have to go and likely get a Zach Bogosian type. And I saw this idea suggested on Twitter today by Michael, also known as at the Leafs, in my opinion, on Twitter. Should the Leafs consider bringing back Luke Shen on a one-year contract? <laughs> what do you think of that, Ian? Uh, I, I, actually, I saw the, I saw the numbers that were quite comparable to Zach Bogosian this past year. Okay. That's, and again, if you have a puck mover who does all the hard stuff and all you need to do is defend and be the last man back and, and block shots on the PK, it's not the hardest role in the world. And when they signed Zach Bogosian, I was a bit hesitant at first and he proved me wrong. He proved that he could handle third pair minutes. And that's one of the biggest frustrations here is that. I think they're really going to miss Zach Bogosian. That was one of the best third pairs in hockey. And yeah, it's only a third pair. They play, what, 12, 13, 14 minutes a night. But if you can crush those minutes instead of getting crushed in those minutes, that makes a difference. And if you add up those shots, those scoring chances, and those goals at the end of the year, sometimes that can be the difference between being a good team and being a great team or being a great team and being one of the best teams in hockey. So if you're replacing a Zach Bogosian with a Luke Shen, I think there's a massive drop off there, in my opinion. I know you said that the numbers are similar, but I, I don't know. I've watched a lot of Luke Shen, and I'm not sure how much I trust him defensively. Maybe this is my eye test on Luke Shen, disagreeing with the analytics, but I'd like to see some other options if I'm exploring the right D market. I know Nicholas Yalmerson was near the top of my list for defensively responsible. Yeah, he provides you no offense, but he can play the right side. He can be the defensive presence, and he can PK. But then he retired. So now I'm looking at the list of right side defensemen who are available. And if we're to assume Zach Bogosian isn't one of those names who's willing to come to Toronto, the list gets pretty thin pretty quickly. And the fact that we're even mentioning Luke Shen's name, I think, is indicative of that fact. Yeah, I, I mean, I know he was on the third pair for a Stanley Cup winning team two years in a row, but... He is aging. I'd, I I would rather see a because at some point Timothy Lilligren is going to have to break out, right? Same with even Rasmus Sandini. At this point, he's not guaranteed a roster spot. He has to get some ice time too, uh, bigger ice time. You'd want to see him in a regular NHL role. 
hopefully these two players can find some roles uh, and some ice time with the Toronto Maple Leafs. But McGran also reported that the Leafs and Nick Foligno are still talking. Columbus is out as an option, according to Aaron Portslet. So it's either staying with the Leafs or joining brother Marcus in Minnesota. What contract would you be willing to sign Nick Foligno at if he was going to stay in Toronto, Ian? So it sounds like a prove-it deal might be in the works and that things clearly didn't go the way I already wanted them to. The Leafs brought Nick Foligno in to be a defensive specialist who could play in their top six. We could PK, who when they're protecting leads in a third period, all of a sudden you're double-shifting him. Uh, I understand the idea of a Nick Foligno. I know I argued for Taylor Hall instead of Nick Foligno at the time, but that didn't mean I, I thought Nick Foligno was a bad hockey player. I thought he's an excellent defensive player who got injured and was very clearly not himself in the playoffs. So if I'm going to bring him back on a contract, like I'll, I'll play Kyle Dubas here. I don't think he's going to be interested in a long-term deal. My guess is that he would want a one-year deal to bet on himself, produce some points alongside of Tavares or alongside of Matthews in a big market with a big spotlight on him and then make a lot of money on his next contract. So off the top of my head, I'm thinking one year, 3 million is the number that comes to mind for me. I'm sure you've been thinking about this too. What's a contract that you'd be satisfied with if you're trying to sign Nick Foligno? And realistically, because we'd obviously love him at one year, 1 million, but what's something you think the player and the team could both agree on? Yeah, see, I'd have to wonder, like, is Nick Foligno going to be your third line center? Is he going to be a top six winger for you? Because if he's a bottom six winger, I would not be paying a $3 million. The Leafs just can't afford to do that, right? In terms of the flat cap world, I don't think that's going to really be an option for them. And you're going to want to see a player like Nick Robertson hopefully slide in full time to secure that left wing spot, whether it's in the top six, maybe in the third line. I hope there is an option there because I think Felino wants to come back. I, I kind of I get that sense there that I think. I know he, there are the rumors that he might business. join his brother in Minnesota. I, yeah. I saw that, so that's definitely that an up, option yeah. for him. Yeah, his family's in Ohio, but the fact that Columbus has been a dumpster fire the last year or so, I'm not sure if he wants to go back to that. He's getting older. He wants to win, but if you want to win, why would you resign with a team who? hasn't won a playoff round since 2004. You know? <laughs> Let's just bring this up. That would have to be a short-term deal if he was going to Minnesota because guess what? They just bought out Ryan Suter and Zach Parise and they're going to have $15 million of dollars of dead cap in year three and four of those buyouts. So I don't think they're even going to be able to really afford to pay him what he wants. Yeah, they're in win-now mode for one year and then they're going to have a couple years where they don't have any cap. It's That's such a weird decision. I understand why you want to buy out a Paris. I, I don't think Ryan Suter needed to be bought out. I thought no. he could still play at a top four level. Maybe it's not an ideal contract. Maybe not one you needed to buy out, in my opinion. No, I definitely uh, agree with you there. Now, I just kind of want to end off this Leafs discussion on who, sh the, uh, sorry, who should be the backup goaltender for game one of the 2021-2022 season behind Jack Campbell. I'm just going to throw out some names out there that should... Uh, uh, catch your eyes. So we got Freddie Anderson. That's one okay. option. Darcy Kemper, another. Braden Holtby was thrown around today. James Reimer, Peter Morazic, or David Riddich could potentially come back. Who knows? Which one of those names kind of catches your eyes as a potential backup goalie or maybe even a 1A, 1B tandem situation? Well, you saying the words James Reimer out loud just made me happy. Just, you know, made me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. I'm sure Steve Dangle somewhere is violently screaming for this to happen. Uh, the idea, I remember seeing somewhere that Bernier was interested maybe. So if you had a Bernier-Reimer 
goalie tandem in Carolina. How oh, awesome I, I would that to be? see that. <laughs> yeah. The, how great would that be just to reunite the pair? But uh, if I'm giving you my favorite name, I'm not sure if you mentioned him. Linus Olmark is the guy oh, yeah. my eye on for a while now. And he's an interesting guy statistically because I know we're both hockey nerds here. His raw save percentage looks really good over the last couple seasons, but his adjusted save percentage when you take uh, shot quality into account it actually falls off a little bit because yeah. in Buffalo, I think they turtled so much defensively. They never had the puck, so they were always collapsing in their own end. It resulted in them getting brutally outshot and outchanced every night, but the average shot quality tended to come from a bit farther away, so it made his save percentage look a little bit better. That's not to say he's a bad goalie. It's just his 920 save percentage that you're looking up when you see him on Hockey DB. It's probably not as good when you adjust for shot quality, so just something to take into account there. Uh, another name that you didn't bring up, but again, from going through all these statistical models and talking to Kevin Woodley and, and going through some of my favorite goalie stuff, Laurent Brassois is a name that I don't hear too many people bringing up, and I think he's one of the most undervalued goalies on the market right now. Again, adjusted save percentage is something that, as a hockey nerd, I love using because measuring goaltending performance is really hard. There's a lot of contextual factors in play. And if you can adjust for where the shot's coming from and whether or not the goalie should have saved it, look at the expected goals versus the actual goals that did go in. Laurent Brassois actually played at a similar pace to Connor Hellebuck last year. He just obviously didn't play as many games. Do I think he's as good as Connor Hellebuck? No, obviously not. The sample is way smaller last year. And in years prior, he was nowhere near Connor Hellebuck's level. But the fact that he did that well last season would make me want to take a flyer on him. And you're going to need a couple guys. You're going to need some warm bodies and net. You're going to need a 1A, a 1B. I've been joking. You're going to need a 1C and a 1D probably if, if things go wrong. So uh, does Frederick Anderson come back on a one-year prove-it deal? I'd be fascinated by that because I know he's a proud guy and he wants to prove himself. As a fellow ginger-bearded man, I'm always rooting for him, so I want him to succeed in life. But if I'm just thinking as the Leafs GM, what do I do that's in the team's best interests? I want an undervalued goalie who maybe doesn't even go on day one of free agency. I maybe want a day two goalie or day three goalie and a couple guys who could come in. So that's why I brought up Laurent Brassois. I'd want him as my one C. I'd want him as the third guy. And as my one B, I'll go Linus Allmark. That's, that's my pick. I've thought a lot about it. I've gone through all the goalies and trying to look at who's overvalued, who's undervalued here. I think Linus Allmark is still very undervalued on the open market. I'd love to see the Leafs get him on a two or three year deal in that two to $3 million range. Seems to be a lot of goalies seem to be going for that three-ish million dollar range for backups. No, I'm glad you brought up Linus Allmark because covering the Sabres this year, I did a lot of research into the underlying numbers for Allmark and in terms of his all-strength high danger save percentage, all-strength goal saved above expected. He ranked 50th and 36th in the NHL respectively. So like you mentioned, the raw save percentage kind of paints a different picture than uh, opposed to the underlying numbers. So in my eyes, that's why I think he works best in a tandem situation, you know, and not playing with uh, the arguably one of the worst goaltenders in the league and Carter Hudson, like he did in Buffalo last year. I think if he could really find that strong partner with a guy like Jack Campbell, I think that would be the best of both worlds. And ultimately, if he can come at a cheaper price and he can be undervalued at maybe even a form three, the $4 million cap hit, I don't know, maybe some team offers him five. We'll have to see. I would love to see him as a Toronto Maple Leaf. Who's your goalie, by the way? If you have your pick of the litter and you can have one guy on, let's say it's a two-year, three-year deal for around $3 million, who's your guy? See, I mean, Darcy Kemper's obviously a fun name to look at, but looking at the look at what they got for Aiden Hill, right? A second-round pick. 
that means Kemper's obviously going to be worth a first-round pick plus at that point. And if you're the Toronto Maple Leafs, you can't just be throwing around first-round picks every year. So I think he's going to do it at every deadline. <laughs> right? I mean, I think we can count on it next year. They might do it, but I think they'll wait. I don't think they would throw a first-round pick at a goalie, in my opinion. Braden yeah, you're Holt, probably right. They probably save that for a top rental at the deadline next year. Yeah, top aging rental, I'm sure, or maybe not. yeah, the we'll second <laughs> best rental available. Yeah. <laughs> Braden Holtby is a name I just wouldn't look at looking at any metric possible you could even just look at his stats on hockey DB and uh, you know I wouldn't want him at all looking at his 889 save percentage from this last season he's fallen season. off the cliff he's not coming back no uh, I, I, I'm curious I mean he obviously played in Vancouver yeah, behind the defense that's centered around uh, Tyler Myers and even Quinn Hughes who defensively looked very out of place last season I'd be yeah, curious he was really to see. missing Chris Tanev yeah, he was. I wonder if a change of scenery would do wonders for him, but he's uh, he's very overpriced, right? So I don't know if that would work. James Reimer would and be interesting. I would uh, be curious to see if that could work. Peter Mrazek as well. I mean, I just wonder what the price would be. David Riddich is a guy. I'm just wondering where he's going to go, right? Because we've heard literally nothing about this guy. I yeah, have a feeling he had like he's one bad back. start and was never seen again. It's just a really fascinating case where they gave up some decent draft capital to acquire this guy. He was the Michael Hutchinson failsafe. They never wanted to see Michael Hutchinson in a playoff game. That's why they traded for David Riddick. And then he had a, a mad game, a bad game, and he was out. And that was it. I don't think they plan on re-signing him. I don't like evaluating goalies based on a very small sample size. You know, I'm like you. I like looking at the 100-plus games. What has this guy done? Let's account for the context and try to make a fair assessment here. I think we all know that Riddick is better than he showed in his very limited showing in Toronto. So does he get re-signed by the team? Probably not. But who is going to sign him? Because I think he's a half-decent goalie. Obviously not a 1A, but he could be a decent 1B, I think, on a team who's trying to compete for the playoffs. No, I agree with you there. I just have no idea. I mean, if you could get him at a very low price hit, just considering how poor of a season I guess he had with the Leafs. Uh, I'm try- I can't remember his Calgary numbers at the moment, but I don't think he's a guy that's going to be making more than potentially 1.5 in the open market, especially considering he was a third string goalie for us. So the backup goal, I honestly have no idea who they're going to sign it. There's no clear direction here. I know they've been linked to Darcy Kemper. Unless they're going to really overpay for him, I don't think that's going to work out there. But they have a very, they have a really good situation here with Jack Campbell at $1.6 million as your starting goalie. They have to make it count. And I think they're going to have to spend a little bit more money this year on the backup position because they need to have solidified goalie goaltending for the whole season. And, uh, well, and it seems like they're preparing their cap sheet for that. I know Dubas in the past has paid very little for the backup goaltender and that that's kind of burned him with a Garrett Sparks, with a Michael Hutchinson. I'd like to think that he recognizes the importance of a strong tandem in the NHL now. I don't think you can have a goalie playing the 60, 65 games that Frederick Anderson was playing for them and it reminded me of a running back in football where you just give a guy 200, 300 carries a couple years in a row, his knees get shot, and then you don't re-sign him. But that kind of feels like what would happen with Frederick Anderson. He played all these games, a crazy amount of load on that guy when you consider not only the fact that he was playing some of the most games in the NHL, he was facing the most shots on, on average per night. I think if you look at per season, he led the league in shots against and saves made. So poor guy had to go through all that and didn't get any playoff success. Then he comes in this last year, gets injured, forced to play through it, doesn't do well, loses the net to Jack Campbell, who has a heck of a year, and now his contract's up and the team wants nothing to do with him. I I don't think it's a fun situation for Frederick Anderson right now. Do you think he re-signs with Toronto, or do you think he finds himself a a good spot to earn another contract? 
No, I think there's going to be an NHL GM that pays him like a starting goalie at a $5 million really? cap it even, maybe $4 million, But I was even seeing some reports today on it. I think he's likely gone at this point. And he's at least going to test the market. Maybe there's a slight chance he comes back. But who knows? And I'm kind of, I'm just kind of curious because it, it really does seem like all the talk about load management, but this guy was correct. I remember even you were harping on that a few years ago. Him playing these 66-game seasons consecutively, like... He should I not have been see doing how that, that helps him. You know, you, the goal is to maximize this guy's output, especially come playoff time. And if you're just burning him out on a February night on Tuesday, I don't see how that helps you. And I bring up the same thing with the Joe Thornton, where I'm thinking the absolute end goal here should be to maximize this player's results in the playoffs because the regular season doesn't matter that much. Yet here you are burning him out in the regular season. He gets to the playoffs. He's a bit tired. I know Vasilevsky's talked about this in the past. You could make the argument that you got to keep guys warm and that when they're riding a hot streak, you want to keep them starting. But 65 is too much. I mean, I think you're aiming closer to 50 these days. No, I agree with you there. And uh, yeah, I mean, with that, we can head into our general NHL news. I want to dissect two trades. We've already dissected the Seth Jones trade a little bit. I want to get into this Arizona-Vancouver trade that took place on draft weekend. The Arizona Coyotes, just I don't know what their plan is for the next season, but at, at the moment, it seems to be taking on every bad contract in the National Hockey League. That is their plan. Hey, don't talk about Connor Garland like that. Hey. And they are in the midst of a... They actually just acquired Anton Strahlman at the time we are recording this. But their big move was trading Connor Garland, as you mentioned, and Oliver ekman Larson to Vancouver. In exchange for the ninth overall pick that turned into Dylan Gunther, Louis Erickson, Jay Beagle, and Antoine Roussel. Now, the big key factor here is OEL has six more years left at $7 million, which they had to get retained, by the way. It was originally 8.2, while the other three players all expire after next season. So $12 million will come off the books um, for Arizona after next season, and they'll just have that cap space. Which side came out on top of this convoluted trade, in your opinion? This one kind of reminds me of the Dion Phaneuf trade. Do you remember when he was traded? Yeah, Yeah, because Ottawa had bad contracts that were going to end very shortly, whereas the Leafs had a really bad contract that was going to last a long time. If you're a GM, who do you want? Do you want the bad contract that ends in a year or two, or do you want the bad contract that ends six years from now? Personally, I I want the one that ends shorter because I want to be able to get out of it. So I, I think the frustrating thing here, if you're a Canucks fan, is that the incentive structures in place for Jim Benning, not just this year, but heck, the last half decade, have been for him to win now and to spend futures on winning now. And I just think it's put them in such a rough situation. I like Connor Garland. I like him a lot. And I think he's really going to help them in a bunch of different ways. Their top six looks filthy right now up front. I really like Vancouver's forwards. I like what their power play could look like. I'm not sure if you're going to have Garland on the left wall because where are you going to put Brock Besser? Is he going to be maybe in the middle? You can do a bunch of different things now because you have all this talent up front. The frustrating thing is that OEL contract because he hasn't been very good for a long time. And I know that most hockey fans don't watch the Arizona Coyotes. I I made fun of the Coyotes like this when we were talking about Connor Garland in our podcast on the MLHS podcast because I really like Connor Garland. I like him a lot, but I'm also well aware of the fact that most people aren't watching him most nights. So you kind of have to take that into account. With OEL, I think people just accepted that he was a number one defenseman without having watched him the last three years. And if you look at the five and five results, they haven't been there. Every time he's on the ice, they're getting crushed. They're getting hemmed in their own zone, giving up a lot of shots, giving up a lot of chances, giving up a lot of goals. 
Is that entirely Oliver Ekman Larson's fault? I don't want to say entirely because I don't think the situation in Arizona is necessarily a play driving situation. I don't think he's surrounded by a lot of guys who can strip the puck away from the opposition, advance it up the ice, and then make a skilled play to hold on to the puck for long periods of time. So I think that's a factor there. And I think getting to play alongside great talent like Tyler Myers is really going to make a big difference for him. Like, I'm, I'm joking about it there because, man, I'm, I, I feel bad for Harmon Dial and the smart uh. Vancouver nerds out there just because I think they recognize that in the short term, this is going to be awesome for them. Connor Garland's really good. But four years from now, OEL is still going to be on your books, and he's he's not going to be any better. He's going to be worse, and I'm not sure how good he is today. So how bad is he going to be four or five years from now? That has buyout written all over it. I'm not sure what he's going to do in year one, though. I'm curious if you think he can have a bit of a bounce back year from what he had in Arizona. Well, I'm just curious because he's going to have to play on PP2 then, I imagine, because Quinn Hughes is obviously going to be on the first power play unit. So is he going to be producing that much? I guess most of his point production is going to have to come at 5v5. And uh, I just want to talk a little bit about this. Look at the amount of money that Vancouver is allocating to their defense at the moment. Because Quinn Hughes, I have to imagine, probably comes in at a bridge deal, right? They're going to have to sign him to a bridge contract. Because long term, you're going to have to pay him around the Miro Heiskanen number, maybe at $8 million. Maybe you could get it at seven and a half. I wonder there. And, and the then your guy has zero leverage because uh, he, uh, one of those situations where only played the two years. So he's yeah. not arbitration eligible. So they could hold out and, and force him to take a bad, you know, bridge deal if they want to. We'll see what happens there. I'm curious to see his, his contract. And of course, we discussed Tyler Myers is still making $6 million for four more seasons. And now you got OEL at $7 million. So, I'm curious. I guess you're going to have to pair them up with all league men defensemen coming next season because I don't know how you're going to make that work in that situation there. And uh, Are we assuming they're moving out Nate Schmidt's money? Yeah, th- that sounds like that's about to happen. They're going to have to. Okay. Yeah, I don't see how, how you fit it otherwise. And he just didn't really fit in there last season as well. It seems like they want a better fit there for the player and the team. It didn't really and that's so weird because he was excellent in Vegas alongside Braden McNabb facing some of the toughest minutes in the NHL. In his stint in Vegas, I don't think people realize that when they talk about a number one defenseman who faces top competition, that was Nate Schmidt. He had 99th percentile competition and did really well in those minutes. Do you think it was because of, because of Braden McNabb? I think Braden McNabb's a pretty decent hockey player, but I think Nate Schmidt was the guy on that pairing. And the fact that he had such strong results in Vegas and such poor results his first year in Vancouver, I don't know what to take out of that because I, I liked him on Washington. I think that his ability to move the puck and keep it in the offensive zone with his skill, I, I think those are re- repeatable aspects of play. If they trade him to a new team and Nate Schmidt has big-time success in the top four, are you going to be shocked? No, not at all. And yeah, I won't be either. So I, I'm kind of wondering here. Yeah. I'm thinking, man, they just, they're trading for Oliver Ekman Larson. They're going to trade away Nate Schmidt. When I'm wondering, I think Schmidt's going to have the better season next year than Oliver Ekman Larson. I'm glad that you revisited that trade too from Vegas because another defenseman that was traded from Vegas was Colin Miller, who up until his play time in uh, Buffalo looked like a really decent option as a third, maybe even a second pairing defenseman. Every Leafs fan wanted this guy back in like 2018. I was that Leafs fan. Yeah, yeah, you were. I remember that. He's a guy I've I've had to look myself in the mirror and, and just go, is this the type of player that you believe in, Ian? Because... It didn't work out here. And I know that you're never going to be right 100% of the time. One of the jokes in analytics is that we're just trying to 
be wrong, you know, less often. That's kind of the goal. We're just trying to minimize the error here. But with Colin Miller, I think he brought up the fact that his puck moving numbers, you know, his gap control, some of the micro stats, even the macros, if you look at the, the fact that he was crushing bottom pair competition. But some guys just can't move up the lineup. Some guys get put into that top four role and they never really succeed. I'm still holding out hope on Travis Dermott long after everyone has sold their Travis Dermott stock. I'll still buy it. I'll still take your Travis Dermott stock if you're giving it to me because I believe in these guys. I believe in guys who can move the puck, who can stop the puck, and can thrive consistently regardless of who their partner is in a third-pair role. So even if I'm wrong every so often with a Colin Miller type, I still like betting on those guys because I think history has shown us that it's a good bet to make. Nate Schmidt was that guy, and he did incredible in Vegas. I don't know what happened in Vancouver, but I still like betting on those types of players. I agree with you too, and it was worth the risk because it was only a third round pick because they had just signed Alex Petrangelo. So, I mean, everything was going Vancouver's way, and of course, everything went wrong last season. So, it wasn't meant to be with Nate Schmidt and Vancouver. The final trade that we can dissect here is the Rasmus Ristolainen trade, as this is a player that I covered this season. He looked good, actually, for the first 10 games on a pairing with Jake McCabe, but then his performance regressed to the mean as it has for the past uh, few years. Why did Philadelphia make this trade, in your opinion? Because they've been on the trade market a lot, acquiring Ryan Ellis, moving now Jacob Voracek for Cam Atkinson. And in this one, they moved out the 13th overall pick, a 2023 second. And by the way, that draft's projected to be the best draft of this decade at the moment, at least. I mean, I don't want to obviously call it that, but that's what all the scouts are saying at the moment. And then they even get Robert Haig back. Why does Philadelphia do this? Just to get Rasmus Ristolainen. Yeah, it's... One of the biggest disconnects for me here is why NHL GMs seem to value this guy. Because personally, I don't. You know, if I if I'm in a room with someone, I'm probably just saying I think he sucks. I don't think he moves the puck at all. I think he plays in his own end all the time. I think he's an off the glass and out kind of guy. I think despite the talent that he showed in his teen years, he was one of the most productive Finnish defensemen at age 17, 18, dominated the world juniors early in his career was a power play phenom. And despite Buffalo's, you know, their struggles at five on five, there was that Eichel, Ristolainen, Ryan O'Reilly power play that was top five in the league. I think NHL GMs see that guy and they go big guy, lots of skill, They look at the point totals, they look at the time on ice, and they say, yep, this is a top pair defenseman. I see a guy who at five on five gets outshot and outchanced almost every night. When you add it up over the last three to five seasons, it's it's one of the worst differentials in the NHL. Yes, it's on a bad team, but I remember Manny tweeted this a while ago when he was building one of his models. This was just an offhand tweet that he put out, but it's stuck with me ever since. He said that he's noticed that when he's trying to build his models, the players who have the most time on ice on a team tend to be responsible for the results of that team in that a team kind of takes on the identity of its most played players. And Rasmus Ristolainen, even though he's on a bad team, he's the minutes leader on that bad team. So he's a big part of the reason that that team is bad. And we need to take that into account when we're evaluating the player. So even though point totals on the power play are are something that he can bring to his new team, and even though he has all the physical tools that NHL GMs love, you know, the size, the skating ability, the puck skills, these are all things that you'd see and you'd think this is a top pair defenseman. If the results aren't there at five on five, and this isn't just one season, this is multiple seasons, I think we need to accept that this player isn't what you think he is. And I could be talking about Nikita Zaitsev. 
I could be talking about Andrew McDonald. I could be talking about a lot of guys who NHL GMs just keep giving money, keep playing lots of minutes, and they keep getting shelled at five on five. And at some point, I think you are who you are. The results are what they are. And I'm not trying to be mean to Rasmus Ristolainen in here. I'm sure he's a decent guy. I just know that when he's on the ice, his team gets destroyed. And I don't want a player with that reputation. And nobody's denying the raw intangibles of Ristolainen's game. I mean, he is a talented player. I mean, he, he's gone on end-to-end rushes and scored beautiful goals in the past, but he can't think the game, and that's the main aspect there. And usually with players of that degree that can't think the game, they don't usually work out that well because he's a big right-handed defenseman. The notion surrounding him is different. An interesting I wonder... T- oh, sorry. No, I'm sorry for cutting you off there. I, I was just going to say that I wonder if in his rookie season, his first couple of years in the league on those tanking Buffalo teams. I wonder if that gave him some really bad habits that just manifested themselves. And now he just plays conservative Chris Russell hockey, where he clearly has the talent to make a better play, but he makes the safe play and gives the other team possession. And if you do that time and time again, every shift, you're not going to have the puck as much. The other team's going to have more shots. They're going to have more chances. And at the end of the day, they're going to have more goals. And I just, I want players who make plays so that their team maintains possession and improves their chances of getting up the ice and scoring. And I get so frustrated with wrist aligning types because he clearly has the tools to do it, but the decisions that he makes result in his team not having the puck very often. And that's just not a good thing. All I got to say to that is Buffalo ruining the development of one of their players. Whoever could thought, you know, shocker, <laughs> like it at all possibly their... seen this coming. Lawrence, look Pilot at their draft agrees. history. Look at Alex Nylander. Look at all of those players selected in the past decade for the Sabres. It's not a, it's not a great list. And uh, I can't wait to see Sam Reiner on a, on a real team. I know that I'm guy is excited. a heck of a 200 foot player watching him on Florida. I'm terrified as a Leafs fan. This division's really strong. I, I think know, Toronto might be crazy. the fourth. Wor- I think Toronto's the fourth best team in the division. I don't like Montreal went to the Stanley Cup finals and I nobody's picking them to make the postseason. (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me a lot of the year um, when Ottawa almost went to the cup final. They were a Chris Kunitz overtime goal away from going to the cup final. And the next year they were a train wreck. And I I could see Montreal being a very similar situation. Especially if they lose Philip Deneau. Especially, yeah. They could lose two thirds of one of the best lines in hockey. And it's just crazy to think about, but they don't value Thomas Tatar and Philip Deneau might get more money elsewhere. So that, that's a fascinating circumstance too. I know. And I mean, the Dallas Stars, even this past season, they went to the Stanley Cup finals, missed the postseason. Now it's mainly due to injuries and circumstances like that. But if the Montreal Canadiens get an injury or two to their roster at the moment, are they going to be strong enough to make the postseason? I would have to wonder. So, and with that, I also just wanted to add this little interesting tidbit here. I, researched this and Jay Fresh Hockey even brought it up is that Ristolainen has actually played decreased minutes the last few seasons his time on ice used to be 26 minutes back in 2017-18 it's now decreased to 22 to 23 minutes now I think it still has to go a bit lower than that and his on ice results actually decreased in those limited minutes is there any potential for a rebound because I just want to know like do you think there is any chance that he could play well in Philadelphia's system there so I always hear this with players. Dion Phaneuf, you know, consistently getting shelled regardless of who his partner is in Toronto. Oh yeah, but in a different circumstance, Ottawa's going to play him in a more sheltered role and he'll do well there. He gets a little bit more sheltered in Ottawa and still gets crushed at 5-on-5. Five five. They trade him to LA. Oh, maybe he'll do a little bit better in LA, you know, different circumstance. They'll shelter him. Still gets destroyed at 5-on-5. Five five. So I, I think at some point, if there's a large enough sample of us seeing you get outshot, outchanced, and outscored at five on five, 
I think that's who you are as a player. And it, and it sucks because I want to, if, if I'm talking to him man to man, I don't want to say that to him. I want to tell him that I think there are ways that you can improve your game and that you have certain tools that work really well. But the ingrained habits that are still in his game at age, how old is he now? Is he mid 20s? Uh, yeah, Ristolainen, he's currently 26. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So at, at 26, I think you are who you are as a professional hockey player. There are uh, individual circumstances where players will have a, a breakout year. Brent Burns just seemed to keep getting better at 30, 31, 32. Brad Marchand, similar yeah. trajectory. But on a, can you bet on that happening? That's, that's very no. improbable. It's not impossible, but it's improbable. And I like making smart bets. So I don't think Ristolainen is a smart bet. It's not impossible. I can see him going to Philadelphia, playing with Provorov, and being in a better situation there. So maybe his results aren't terrible. Provorov's results aren't that great either. He, he's a player that also needs to rebound because that's he's another, another debate. He's another yeah. Again, the <laughs> results don't quite meet what your eye sees when yeah. you watch him. And Seth Jones, Provorov, Ristolainen, these are all guys where you see certain things that you love. But I think if you're looking closely at them defend the rush and transition and back up onto their goaltender instead of making a play in the neutral zone to disrupt the opposition and force a dump in or force a change of possession. I think that's what you need to focus on with these guys because Nikita Zaitsev is the guy who comes to mind for me because in my life, I had so many people telling me, oh my God, the way this guy can skate, the way he can fly around his net with the puck, look at these KHL highlights. Yeah, he had a rough year here. Yeah, the results aren't what you want them to be, but in a better situation, more sheltered, better partner, could he thrive? And the answer with him has always been no. So why should I feel differently about a player with a similar background, with a similar history, with similar results at five on five? Maybe I'm wrong, and there's a there's a chance I am wrong, but I like betting on... The, that, one of my favorite things I heard when I was uh, in, a, in a university seminar once was that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And I think the best predictor of, of future results at the NHL level are, are past results. And what are Ristolainen's past results? They're not very good. So I would bet on his future results being not very good. And I hate to say that, but I think it's the truth at the end of the day. No, I tend to agree with you there. I have to wonder if the results are going to be pretty much the exact same, especially if he's paired with Ivan Provorov. I, maybe they're betting that two negatives make a positive there on a defense <laughs> pairing, but I'd have to wonder. Now... We're getting set here to end the show, but I always do my three NHL predictions with all my guests. I'm going to have you handing you a few true or false questions, right. and you can elaborate on that. Okay, so we're going to start. These are all uh, the first two are Leafs oriented. So it came out before the show that Nick Ritchie was not tendered a qualifying offer with the Boston Bruins. So I will propose this. Do you believe that the Leafs should sign him as an unrestricted free agent? Do you believe that they will do it? True or false? I'll say true, and it'll make Don Cherry very happy. But no, realistically, I don't think that's happening. I'll say false. <laughs> false, yeah. I mean, he. I mean, looking at some of the numbers there, he actually has improved generally his finishing ability as well in terms of his play driving metrics, how he uh, drives the play at 5v5. He would be an interesting guy to add to the third line if he's obviously not commanding too much money. I'm curious. I mean, he did just have his best season, so he would be an interesting guy there. I just don't know if it's going to fit with Toronto. The second one I have here, true or false? The Leafs re-sign one of Alex Galchenyuk, Nick Foligno, or Freddie Anderson. True or false? I'll say two out of three. Two out of three. You think two out of those guys are being re-signed? That will be my hot take of the day, yes. Well, I got to say this. Galchenyuk, if he wants to maintain his NHL career, should be re-signing in Toronto. In I, I think that one's going to get done. I think that's the highest chance of getting done. And I think one of 
Felino and Anderson gets done. But I think Galchenyuk back in Toronto makes too much sense for him because it's where he had success and he hasn't had much success at the NHL level over the last few years. And I think for the Leafs, it makes sense because they need warm bodies up front who make under a million dollars. And I think Galchenyuk will come in somewhere around that range on a short-term deal. If you notice, we've heard nothing about it. So likely they've already informed him that they have to work on their other roster decisions first, and then they can fit him in afterwards, hopefully, as long as another team doesn't try to snag him up. The last one I have here, true or false, the Seattle Kraken finish in second or third place in the Pacific Division next season? I'm going to say true. The Pacific's not very good. Oh, yeah. Their team isn't done yet. They have so much cap space. I'm I'm curious to see what they do with it. Do they make a run at a Dougie Hamilton? Do they take on a bunch of bad uh, contracts and add draft capital and younger players who haven't been given a chance to succeed? I know that their forward group isn't as good as it was projected to be if they had taken on some guys like a JVR, if they'd taken on a Tarasenko, if they'd taken on trying to think who else had a big contract that they were able to add up front. They chose not to. They they clearly yeah. went with the Tarasenko. price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They went with the price conscious way of going, okay, yeah, this guy isn't necessarily as good as the guy we could have got, but he's cost controlled, he's cheap, and we'll use that cap space in another way to add assets to the team. I can understand what they're doing, but the lack of side deals was disappointing, and the lack of firepower up front, if I'm a Seattle Kraken fan, I'm a bit disappointed from that expansion draft. They're not done yet. They have $28 million in cap space that they have the next few months to figure out how they're going to use, but uh, I'll say they make the playoffs because I think there are some moves they can make in free agency here to add to their forward group to take on some bad contracts and maybe pick up a, a nice player in, in the process. Do you remember the Tivu Teravainen trade from a few years ago? I do, yes. I'm curious to see if they try to pull off something like that. That would be a very analytic, savvy move that I'm sure Eric Tolsky would approve of. And, you know, Namita Namdekumar oh, and, uh, yeah, yeah you know, you know that she's pushing for that behind the scenes. So very curious to see how they can allocate some of that cap room. And I will just add to your point there. Elliot Friedman has linked that Jaden Schwartz will be signing with the Seattle Kraken. So July there you 20th. go. They so are adding to that forward group. They're even yeah. linked to looks Phil nice. Yeah. They're linked to Philip Deneau as well, so that could be one of their centers that they put there. Ooh. Maybe you got a Yanni Gore, Jared McCann, Philip Deneau center core. That's not too bad, actually, especially Jared McCann with his underlying metrics this past season can maybe even progress, have an Eric Holla-like season like he had in Vegas, have like a 60-point year. See, I was in such a good mood until you brought up Jared McCann's name. <laughs> oh, and, and sorry, now I, I think I need to go pour myself a beer. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a, that's a quick debate. Uh, actually not quick at all I, because uh, i like justin I hall i prefer jared mccann that'll be my quick take there definitely and with that we are ready to end the show so thank you for listening to the babbling bets podcast make sure to follow ian on twitter his username is at ian graph he always loves to talk about the graphs and charts just like me it's always the best thing to do in the world of course and once again thanks for listening or watching if you're on youtube and we have babbled enough for today. Until next time.